Hello, I'm Mary Portis and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow. People, planet and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? Of the many insight in Jim Collins' seminal business book, Good to Great, the Stockdale paradox is one that really fascinates me. Collins coined the term after interviewing James Stockdale, a US naval officer who'd been imprisoned and tortured for seven years during the Vietnam War. When asked how he survived, Stockdale replied, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. In other words, Stockdale acknowledged the gravity of the situation he was in, but his faith that he would move beyond it was unerring. So, what can businesses of today learn from Stockdale? Well, we like him must accept the curious paradoxical position we're now in. On one hand, being clear-eyed and realistic about where we are. On the other, maintaining this unwavering faith that we can achieve whatever we set out to. And it's true, there are some really tough realities for us to face, from the environmental impact of what we do to the human cost. But we're not going to fix these problems overnight, And right now, no one has all the answers. But as we search for them, one thing that's certain is that ignoring problems or papering over their surface with glossy top-line initiatives won't work. We have to be clear-eyed about what it is we need to fix. We have to have faith that we will in time and be honest about where we are right now. We live in an age of glass box brands after all, and thanks to social media and consumers who are increasingly inquisitive about the brands they're buying from, the truth will always out. You know who you are. Today, the real forward thinkers know that slick marketing isn't enough, and until they fully embody what it is they're aiming for, they're acknowledging their shortcomings and they're laying out how they're going to tackle them. An example, one of my favourites, is Ganny. And it's been one of the biggest fashion success stories in recent years. And they admit that it doesn't identify as a sustainable brand. Instead, the company is focused on becoming the most responsible version of ourselves. And they call it a continual process. And last year, they set out a three-year plan targeting 44 goals, covering everything from gender equality to circular production. Ganny doesn't claim to be perfect. In fact, it protects itself from accusations of greenwashing by being the first to admit that it isn't at the same time as concretely committing to action and behaviours that will help it do better. So maybe we need to add a third element to the Stockdale paradox as we bring the kindness economy to life. Something in addition to the faith that we can achieve true change and the discipline needed to be really accepting of where we are now, however imperfect. That third element is transparency. None of us need to be perfect, just open-eyed, willing and tenacious. I'm Mary Portas and this is The Kindness Economy. The 
China's economy is supported by Dell Technologies. So who have I got down the Dell tube pipe? Hello, Emma Gregan in Dublin again. Go on, tell me what you've got coming, not even down my Zoom pipeline, but in the future pipeline, what offers have you got at Dell? So we are in September, we'll be launching our Dream Tech Contest for the UK where we will be giving Dwen members the opportunity to win tech prizes tailored specifically for their businesses. Dwen, which is a Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. Um, and you can sign up through dwen.com. That's the first time I've heard tech done as a prize. I love the idea of that. Thanks, Emma. Have you still got the Liffy in the Wiffy? What's your name? The one in the river. What's the woman in the river? The Liffy? The Liffy, yeah. <laughs> what do they call her, though? Don't they call her a name? Oh, do you know what? To be honest with you, I don't know. But my dad is actually originally from Dublin Docklands. And he would tell you to this day, he used to jump off the cranes that used to be all along the Liffey into the seawater. I don't know how he did it because it's minging. Thanks, Emma Gregan. So if you want to know more, go to Dwayne.com and learn all about the Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. Hi, Emily. I, I know what we're going to talk about today. That sounds like I'm going to just take your steal your thunder because what we do in our uh, business and our little portal agency is we always share great ideas, always. don't we? Yeah. And we love it. And then you get everybody's feedback. And we it, it's our little bit of communication. It's uh, our connection if we're not physically in the space together. But we've always done it. So start with this one and t- tell us how it happened it's today was it yeah i'm laughing because obviously last week um we beat denmark and this is um <laughs> this is based in denmark so maybe if they beat us i wouldn't be talking about it i do love the danish we love um, the danish we do we do we do so um in denmark there is a human library and um it's not as dodgy as it sounds so it sort of works like a regular library and rather than borrowing a book you borrow a human and they will share their story with you. Now, the beauty... Do you cut off with them? Do you just no. go... Don't. Well, you... <laughs> you, just go. you sure this isn't a dating site? No, it's not. I swear it's not. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Um, so, yeah, so basically, they're, you know, the human books, as they call them, are volunteers and they speak openly about their life experiences and where it's interesting is every single one of those humans is someone that's been subjected, stigmatised, discriminated against because of their lifestyle, their diagnosis, their beliefs, their disabilities. So they're really interesting people often wouldn't necessarily get to share their story um, and we just loved it because you know listening to a real person's story is such a good way to combat and confront prejudice you know it helps with your own personal bias yeah. and it's just a beautiful thing to open up open up your mind man I, I, I was in the cab coming over here because I was late after um, uh, uh, yeah just late whatever <laughs> let's not get into it Mary oh. no no just late <laughs> and I was running and I got in the cab and then um, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, do you, uh, this human library, I loved it so much, I was thinking, God, I'd love to put this into a business. Yeah. yeah. Do they have, like, race, gender, you know, yeah, how yeah, you yeah, go yeah. and you have the library and you've got, well, you fall into, I don't know what I'd fall into. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, diversity, race, gender, do you, history, politics, I wonder how... How they categorise it. Yeah, I mean, we don't know enough about it, no, but we just love the I idea of it, I think it was more, we? yeah, it was just more on the actual stories, I think, is the way they categorise it. But could I walk but, in and say, look, I'd like to come in the library? And they go, well, you, do I have to tell them my life? And then, I imagine them. Yeah. yeah. Would they want you in their library? <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back next week on that one. <laughs> it's such a lovely idea. And I was thinking, do they all go in there and just sit and chat? Or do they all stay in a physical space? Or is it all digital? I think at the moment it's digital, yeah. But you can yeah. speak to someone, you know, if it's, if it's for an event or something, you can... 
I just love someone. that because actually it's really, it's like going to a therapist. You want to share and someone else goes, I've gone through that or whatever. Let's talk yeah. and I'll tell you my life story. Beautiful. It's just utterly beautiful. And I love the creativity of the Northern Europeans. It I always know. such innovation and love comes out of those countries, which, you know. And sorry we beat it, you it, in the football. A, yeah, sorry we beat you in the football. But is there Prime Minister female of Denmark? Uh, yes. Yeah. Not funny that, isn't it? You see, it's all those soft powers that we talk about, of these things that put kindness, compassion, love, connection at the heart of an economy. Mm. Oh, there's a little line. That's called the kindness economy. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Ems. Long before middle-aged men in Lycra were a thing, Simon Mottran had a passion for cycling and an ambition to share it with the world. His goal was to make cycling the world's most popular sport. Challenging, given that back then the only hardcore few were doing it. But he also wanted to create premium sportswear at a time when most people chucked on an old pair of shorts and a t-shirt. Simon was certainly swimming against the tide and it took him more than 200 meetings to raise the initial money he needed to start Rafa in 2004. But he aspired to create a company that came out of a passion for the thing rather than a passion for having a business full stop. And that passion has seen Rafa grow to span the globe. At the heart of the brand is the idea of community. As well as selling online and in physical stores, Rafa has cycling clubs all over the world and 21 clubhouses in Europe, North America and Asia where members gather to drink coffee, buy products but more importantly, connect and chat. And, of course, <laughs> go cycling together. There are races, events, and an app that everyone can connect on and celebrate their shared love of the sport. Rafa, of course, does all the sort of stuff around the environment and sustainability that any forward-thinking business should do these days, but it's Simon's work with the community and well-being that we're going to focus on today. Because at the heart of it, the kindness economy is about people connecting and looking after your people, your community, be that your employees or those who buy into your brand. How do you play an additive role in their lives? And Rafa is a shining example of just what tapping in to the power of community can do. Welcome, Simon, to the Kindness Economy. Hello. Hello. Loving to have you here. He looks like, I, well, I'm, you might see him when, when we put this up, but he's in <laughs> terribly smart gear, which you cycled in. But they're kind of stretchy Rafa trousers, aren't they? What are they made of? Uh, they're made of a synthetic fabric that's got a brush back. So they're quite nice against the skin, but they've also got quite a sort of durable cover. Um, <laughs> and they're very stretchy and they have some touches of reflective and high-vis pink just so you can be it, seen on the road. It's very cute. Yeah, the little reflective turn-up and a pair of wonderful white brogues. You're looking hot. <laughs> um so Simon, let's just go back to the beginning, shall we? When you were this mad cycling guy who wanted to make the sport call, just tell me about that because at the time, your background, were you a management consultant? Sort of. I was a brand consultant, which is like a poor man's management consultant, I suppose, or maybe a sexy management consultant. Oh. So I advise companies on brands from a sort of strategic and design point of view. So I spent all my time trying to help companies define who they were and work out what their values were and then how do they project those through the organization and then ultimately to the customer um, and spent 15 years doing that. And that's kind of one of the things that led me to think I should do it myself because it's quite hard to do that with an existing 100-year-old company with 20,000 people working for it. 
it's much easier if you start from scratch, doing it properly from the start. Oh God, for sure, for sure. But did you come from the point of view of brand first? Or did you come from the place of, I want to create a brand that resonates with a passion that I have that is centered around well-being? I'm trying to think what came first. It, the having, Doesn't matter. Having we a can, business didn't come first. We can all come, come to first. things late, you know. <laughs> I think brand probably did come first because that was the yeah. thing that I knew how to do. So I'd spent 15 years training to do it and advising companies doing it. So I knew a bit about that. But I also was passionate about cycling. That was my hobby. And I grew up with a father who was a bit of an entrepreneur and worked for an entrepreneur. And and I grew up in the 80s when we were all supposed to be entrepreneurs. It was all really good to go yeah. out there and do your own thing. So I think in me, I had this desire to start a business. But it wasn't to start a business to make lots of money necessarily. It was just to give birth to something and to be your own boss and create something. Um, so all those three things came together quite nicely in Rafa. Yeah, the brand expertise, such as it was, the fervent passion and this drive to have a brand of your own or a company of your own. Which is interesting because it made me think of something that when I left Harvey Nichols, it was that you can only do your own thing and you can only be true and pure if you do your own thing. Mm. Is that how you must have felt? I, quite, quite strongly. Yeah. And I'd worked in a couple of agencies with friends and I could see how that worked or didn't work. Yeah. And I felt I wanted to have my own thing. You know, it, it had to be me giving birth to something that I put everything into and that I could direct. Very sort of megalomaniac, I suppose. Do you think it is? I mean, a little bit. I mean, definitely a control freak. hundred percent. And I, I was then. I'm less so now. Although my wife would probably say I still am. Um, yeah, I think if you, particularly if you work in the world of brands, you want to control every moment. You want to control every point of interaction the customer has. And if you can't control it, it's really hard to do it really well. I think you know things fall apart very, very easily. But let me talk about that control because that's a really interesting thing to say because it seems like a really negative thing to have thrown at you, doesn't it? Mm. Because it means that you're actually suppressing someone else maybe or their ability to express themselves. So how have you within that control let people be themselves? I think you start by showing it. I think if you've shown it enough and you've got a track record, so if you've done five years or 10 years or in my case probably 12 or 15 years, you can start to loosen the reins a little bit because you've shown enough of what it is and what's right and what's wrong and what what it's really all about that you can start to let other people make the decisions for you but it takes a while i think if you don't have the control early on i don't think you get to that sharp point and then it can just be a bit of a blamange can't it it can just go left and right and you lose control very quickly and particularly now that we're trying to reach more types of people with different needs and different values if we hadn't established such a razor sharp understanding of who we were to start with i think we'd find it really difficult and you end up being something for everybody and i always wanted to be a lot for some people and not something for everybody and this drive that you had to create community did it come from a commercial place or an altruistic one um we didn't use the word community for quite a while but the community was there from the start and it started out with very much being a brand and very much being an experienced brand, although with products at the heart, but it always had to be an experience. And being direct to customer, direct to consumer, because I wanted to connect with this community. And going back 20 years, cyclists were few and far between, and they were sort of this hidden community, but no one had flushed it out. So if you saw a cyclist on the road, you'd wave to them. These days you don't because you see them all the time. That happens with Land Rovers, you know, as well. It does I indeed. I a very old Land Rover and the other Landy Rovers people wave at me and I think... I, and while you're waving, you're probably knocking a cyclist off the road, perhaps. No, I'm not. Get out of it. <laughs> 
Um, so, so there was it's this, something lovely about being part of a club, though, isn't it? Totally, yeah. totally. And you felt this as a cyclist then. You felt like you're on this in this funny tribe. Yeah. You knew it was brilliant. You knew what was brilliant about it, and you knew there were some other people who felt the same. But most of the people you knew had no idea, and that that was really special. And yet, I wanted that to grow because I wanted more people to experience what I experienced. So to start with, it was all about tapping into that community. So it was it was flushing out this tribe who existed, but they'd be hidden away. You wouldn't know they were cyclists because at weekends they'd put on these strange clothing I and go out. And, oh, there you go. So you probably knew he was. Yeah. Um, but most people knew cyclists, but they knew one person who was the weirdo in the corner. And I wanted to bring those people together. That was the start point. Let's do something for all of them so they can feel proud of the sport that they all love, but they're not allowed to express it. So when we launched, and we launched with this month-long exhibition called Kings of Pain, um, which is understandable to cyclists, but all, to almost nobody else, that was opening the doors and saying, look, we're a brand. We're all about this thing. We know you like it too. Or if you do, come on in and share it with us. And we'll commune. You know, we'll commune around the Tour de France. We'll watch the Tour de France together, which at the time nobody did. You know, you'd watch the Tour de France alone in a darkened room when your kids had gone to bed and your wife had gone to bed because... You're making them sound like these real freaky... freaky. I think we were made to feel like yeah. that. I don't think we all were like that. We definitely weren't. And in fact, you know, all my best friends are cyclists, so and they were cyclists then, so we, we weren't all like that. But that's what society told you you were. You know, it was all about being something else, not being a cyclist. And talk to me about the freedom that you got from cycling and why you think the clubs are so important and the well-being. Enlarge on that, because that, that really yeah. is what you knew about and you discovered from the men and subsequently women who have joined, that this is very central to their well-being. 100%. So I rode here today and I'd been out for a long ride this morning. So some people would jump on a bus or the tube or walk for an hour or whatever instinctive to me is just to jump on the bike and ride across town and people don't realize until they do it quite what it gives you and it gives you so many different things in a nutshell it gives me mental well-being that's probably the most important thing it helps me make sense of the world it centers me it it just allows things to make sense and obviously it gives me health you know that's 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 almost a byproduct that's not why most of us do it we get that anyway but it gives you mental well-being and health but then it gives you memories and friendships so, which is something we say a lot within Rafa, and that's what the brand is all about, is delivering these memories and friendships to people. Because people, when they ride the bike, they have these amazing experiences that you can't have walking because you don't go far enough, running because, well, it's just awful, isn't it? Playing football, you might have some experiences, but you're playing a game. You know, cycling, you are in the environment, you're discovering places, you are having adventures that you can remember and you can tell people about these incredible experiences. And that's why, I mean, those four things, mental well-being, health, and memories and friendships, put all those together and it's why it's the greatest sport. It's why it's something which, honestly, everybody should do. You know, I'll go to my grave just insisting that everyone give it a go. You've built a really hugely successful business, right? And you've been bought out now. Yeah, largely. Yeah, Largely bought out now. So you're very wealthy. But most businesses, when they get bought out, the first thing that, you know, whoever's bought you out, whether it's VCs or whatever, um, they want to look at the profit in the bottom line, how you grow. And quickest way of doing that for your brand is obviously by digital and less of the physical space, which costs money, right? These mm. community spaces. How are you keeping that balance? Uh, well, we were, we were always quite commercial from day one. Um, and starting out, you had to be because it was quite hard to make any money at all. But we were also direct to consumer from day one. We were digital from day one. So we started out with digital while doing physical experiences to bring the brand to life for people. 
Um, and we had a few wholesale partners, but it was always a very small part of the business. So we were always digital from 2004, which was quite early in the you know the e-commerce world. And that's still 75% of our business, 70 plus percent of our business is digital. But we felt all along that you had to have physical interaction with customers to really have a profound engagement. And actually, this is all, it sounds old fashioned to lots of people. You know, lots of people would just much rather have a single product, you know, and you see it all over the internet now, the perfect pair of shorts, the perfect sock, the perfect, you know, eyewear, and it's all digital and they never have any physical presence at all because that's as you say that costs money and it's difficult to do and now we have this incredibly easy way of getting to customers that was never the point for me it was never about just selling stuff and creating a business that made lots of money it was about selling cycling and promoting cycling and connecting with customers so it's always important to put on these experiences to have physical spaces to go and be with customers so we used to do that by going to where they were so that might be the Etapji Tour, which is a big amateur event that happens in France every year, or used to before the pandemic. Or we'd be going to London to Brighton Ride or putting on our own events and just getting customers to come and spend time with us. And before too long, we started doing pop-ups and then those pop-ups turned to permanent clubhouses. So it was always part of who we were. You know. So putting people at the heart of this, this is what it's yeah. about. Okay. So I, And on that, how do you straddle that gap between... Um, wanting to make the sport more diverse, but also the fact you are a high-end brand. Mm. Well, that's the journey we're on at the moment. And that'll be the journey we're on for the next 10 to 20 years, I imagine. Because when I started out, that community that I talked about, that community of of, uh, geeks and weirdos and nerds, as we were often portrayed, you know, we helped them get out of the closet and be proud of being cyclists. And the cycling boom has helped even more than that. But it was a very specific type of person, and it was very male. It's very male, it's very white. Mammals is a perfect term because it often is middle-aged men you know, who are searching for something and they've got the money to buy a bike and they've got this crazy confidence that they think they can get out on the road and not be killed. And so they just go off and do it and hurrah in their crazy lycra. They, they feel like they're a hero. Um, so it was always for a specific customer at the start because that's what the market was. And you don't start by trying to get lots of people to ride who don't ride mm. and then say, and here's my brand. I think you have to start by going where the market is and the market was with, with mammals. And we helped develop that market into a, you know, a huge boom that it is now. You talked about men going out on bikes searching for something. Talk to me mm. about that because mm. I would like to hear about this because I do think, and this is rather tangential, but I do think Middle-aged men, particularly middle-aged white men, are kind of being left behind. I, I totally agree with that. And I think that's one of, the, one of the reasons that I started the company in the first place and the brand in the first place was because I was younger than that. I was early to mid-30s. But the people around me were like that. And I could see myself becoming one of those people. Becoming one of what well, people? Well, I think men in the modern world are... I mean, it's, I don't want to talk about men's problems because... Men are, men are actually, you know, incredibly fortunate in many ways, but they are somewhat emasculated. And, you know, all the things that your father did that you were supposed to look up to and sort of, you know, think was really good. So, you know, expeditions and exploration. Well, you can't explore anywhere because it's kind of all been done. Um, tinkering with cars. Well, you can't open the bonnet of the car because it'll explode. You're not allowed to even look under the bonnet. Um, the, they were the things that men did to sort of feel male and to conform to a male sort of ideal 
And yet what they found themselves doing is sitting in an office doing PowerPoint about something fairly abstract or meaningless that generally was about money and getting worn out by doing it. So there's no physical sense of pushing yourself. There was nothing sort of creative about it in general, unless you worked in certain creative fields. And it was massively dispiriting. And I think there's a crisis for modern men in many ways. And it it was definitely happening 20 years ago when I was thinking about starting Rafa. And I think cycling is an escape from that. You know, yes, you can work in an office 10 to 12 hours a day for five to six days a week, because that's what people do. And yes, you know, your home life might be sort of all over the place and you're juggling and your wife's working too. So you're sort of, you know, you're trying to run everything together and it's, it must be incredibly hard, but you can just pull on some Lycra and wheel this bike out of the shed. And for a couple of hours, you've got, you know, you're doing something, you're going fast, you're cutting through countryside. Yeah, your mind's expanding, you're, you're feeling fulfilled and you're feeling that you're doing it yourself. I mean, I'm a, I'm a feminist, but I, I'm, I'm also a mother of two sons and a sister of three brothers. And I have seen this, you know, that this particularly m- men being left behind in some ways and not having this place in society that is, I, look, I certainly don't want to go back to the 50s and 60s, mm. like, you know, which I think was... We've pro- still got the patriarchy, of course, but... Well, of course <laughs> you've got the bloody patriarchy. We've got all of that stuff. Um, the patriarchy needs, you know, I will always fight against the patriarchy, but that there is a place that I can feel where men, they don't know and can't connect with what their identity is today and, what, and mm. who they should be. Mm. That's what counts. If we've got happier men who are feeling free... And uh, that stops some of the very negative things that we see, you know, in the patriarchy, then that's got to be a good thing. So getting boys to do it, I think, would be really interesting. But that can't be enough. You know, it can't. If you believe that cycling is this, as I do, is this incredible life experience that makes all of your life better. That's not just for men. You know, that's for for everybody. And it doesn't matter what gender, what color, what, you know what age you are it can be true for anybody so at some point we had to grasp that and we had to start offering to more people so the first thing was to do women's products which we started doing 11 years ago so you know not that early in our life but early enough to now be quite far through that and becoming more relevant to women and the women's market's probably only 15 percent of the market so but it's got to grow and hopefully we'll get it up to what it should be which is 50 percent plus um, so we started doing women's products and then we started to offer products that were more appropriate to younger people. And then we started to embrace minority groups who were totally excluded. Um, and we've only just really started that journey the last you know couple of years. And it's really important we continue to do it for the next 10 to 20 years. When you say minority groups are excluded, what have you done? Well, we started doing it anyway. We started to work with black athletes. I mean, if you look at cycling, I think there might be two black athletes in the Tour de France out of 200 or so, 180, 200 riders. So it's incredibly rare to find black and ethnic minority people in cycling, which is crazy because that's, you know, it's a huge proportion of the population. So we started supporting athletes in that area. And now we've started working with a lot of influencers and we've started to support organizations that help those people to see cycling as being relevant. And often it's just because they just don't see cycling as being relevant. And that's our job. So What about kids? 
And kids, I mean, it used to be that we all rode bikes as kids, didn't we? Yeah. You know, you get your bike age five and you'd go out with your stabilizers and mm. ride to school. I used to ride to school sometimes. You don't see many kids riding to school these days. And it's, you know, it's a travesty or it's a tragedy even that in the last 50 years, the car has so dominated our lives and every aspect of our lives that it's too scary for kids to ride a bike. So with children, it's more difficult. There are some profound barriers to parents wanting their kids to ride bikes. And parents of maybe less affluent parents and parents, you know, live in a council estate on the 13th floor of a tower block. I mean, where do you put the bike? How do you get the bike out onto the street? There are so many barriers. So we've started working through the Rafa Foundation to support organizations that put bikes in front of kids. And we're about to announce an academy with British Cycling to help do that in some inner city areas in London. Um, so you just have to get involved at grassroots. So and it's a long Rafa, haul. Yeah, it's a long haul. The Rafa Foundation, explain what that is. So this was a, an idea of our shareholders, actually, which is incredibly generous of them. They so believe in the purpose of Rafa and the, the ultimate mission that they realized that there were all these problem areas that had to be solved. And that as a business, you know, we're still a commercial entity. We can't just generate so much money that we can pour it into good works. You know, you have to keep it in balance. So they offered to put in one and a half million dollars a year for us to create a foundation and do the good work. Tell me the good work. So we've been doing it now for three years. Um, half of the money goes into the US and half goes into the rest of the world. And the US is our biggest market. So that's how they've, we've mapped it out. And we ask for submissions from any organization that is about engaging less represented groups and getting them involved with cycling and then helping those people progress through their cycling lives, even into sport. So it's trying to create a ladder between people who don't even think of riding to get involved in certain grassroots events and activities and then give them the pathways up to being athletes. Um, it's a pretty massive objective. And we focus it on our biggest markets, UK, US, Germany, Australia, Japan. And we've now supported 15 or 20 organizations, including Hernhill Velodrome in London, which you'll know about probably. It's you know, yep. the, the home of cycling in London. And, and looking at this, the, the moving outwards, I mean, do you think the world of sport is generally responding to all this? I mean, is there really enough being done around diversity, groups of people? I mean, who's doing really good work in this area? It's starting. I do think British sport is pretty good. Yeah. I think we've got some amazing role models. Um, you know, Dina Asher-Smith in, in athletics, for example. I just think people like her are just opening doors for people, just in their minds, opening the doors in their minds that they think, oh, that's relevant. I could do this. Um, so I think some sports are better than others. You know, football's pretty incredible, isn't it? You know, look at the England team playing yesterday. That was pretty mixed, I'd say, from all over the place, including two players from around the corner from where I live. Do you think football players would still play football at that level at a quarter of the wage? Because I think they would. Yeah, I'm sure they would. Yeah. I'm sure they would. I think it's almost abstract what's mm. happened. It's, mm. a, it's a market that's just allowed itself to just balloon and balloon. And it's, and it's got a horrible corrosive effect on everything else, hasn't it? Cycling's not like football, I should point out. There are only a few cyclists in the world who earn more than a million pounds, whereas, you know, any footballer in the Premier League probably and it's, earns it's just that. I find it just ridiculous. I mean, I cannot believe. I think know. most people do, don't they? Yeah, and it just feels that, you know, I mean, it's been incredible what we've seen, some uh, great what Marcus Rashford's been doing during this thing on, on school meals. It's been yeah. incredible. So the reason I think that Rafa is a member of the kindness economy is that I think you've created a product that at its heart is about well-being, connection, and community. 
and the byproduct is selling. Beautiful stuff, right? So it's stuff that enhances lives and actually also the physical space becomes, you know, a part of the fabric of those communities as well. I don't know mm. if you want to articulate that. Mm. The kindness economy for me and, and in the things that we've done at Rafa is about creating fulfillment for other people. And, you know, we used to say you should be focused on the customer. You know, it should be all about being customer-centric. But I don't think many companies really got what that meant. And what it fundamentally means for me is helping other people, customers, and people in the cycling community and people who are cyclists to get more out of life. I mean, that's that's what cycling does, and that's what Rafa's there to to help deliver for people. Actually, what mm. more can you ask for? Just write that down, actually. Put it on our, on our homepage. <laughs> but it is, it's incredibly true, isn't it? We, we, we talk about And I fervently as, believe that. You know, yeah. it's, it's not, and the great thing is it's not bullshit and it's not marketing and it's not, you know, it's not commerce or anything like that. It's, it's, a, it's a mission, you know, it's, it's what you do and it's, it's your calling and it's, it's the engagement that, that gives value. It totally does. It's why our customers spend probably four times, our best customers spend four times more than they would on other brands because they're totally engaged. Yeah, you know, they get that that's what we've given them. Somehow, deep down, they, they understand that we're not there just to take their money and give them some products. So it's what I call the double, they're buying into what you stand for rather than buying from you. Totally, you totally. Yeah, yes. I mean, I cannot tell you how many businesses I talked to about that. You know, even the word sales assistant makes me think, well, you're just selling. Mm. And you go into shops where people don't have a knowledge. They're there just to sell. And it isn't deep. It's wide, but it's not deep. And I just think we hopefully we're going to get back to a time where great brands, great businesses like yours are built on a passion, are built on a love. And are built on a shared belief system as well. Wouldn't you think that that's been I think that's exactly right. Exactly right. That's what brands are. That's what brands have to be, I think. They can't be these sort of like interchangeable things. They have to be built on something that's shared, that's deeply held. And my um, colleagues who work in our clubhouses, we have service standards and all sorts of service training like any retailer would have. But the first thing we teach people is how to engage in a conversation about riding. And then the rest just follows. And then before you know it, you'll have arms full of Rafa products, hopefully. And what's your dreams for the future in business and the world? Not just profit, but what would be your dreams for your children Mm. and how they're going to live and what business can do, what role it can play in society? What what do you have in your heart? It's pretty bleak, isn't it, at the moment? It's a really difficult time. You know, my children are grown up, but they're 20s. My youngest is 20. And you think there's so much opportunity. I look at the world and think it's easier than ever because of the internet and, you know, suddenly this world is is there for you. But I think often they see it as being totally impenetrable and it's all been done because it's all there and they can see it being, you know, in front of their eyes all the time. I think they get intimidated. It feels like every good idea has been done. It feels like everything's very difficult. It feels like you're sort of putting yourself on show. There's all sorts of reasons not to do things. And I honestly do believe that starting stuff and creating something, you know, whether, whether that's a business or it's some art or, I don't know, or a, an event or anything, creating things is what it's all about. Creativity. That's, yeah, and I think, yeah. well, sort of creating rather than creativity. I think you can use creativity to create things. But giving birth to stuff, you know, doing things that weren't there before, I think is the most rewarding thing. And I would love my children to feel like they could go out and 
do something and then look back on it and go, look, I did that because I know how powerful that is rather than saying, well, yeah, I'm going to have to buy a house and, oh, well, you know, in London, that means I'm going to have to have 200 grand saved up. Therefore, I'm going to have to get a job as a lawyer and that means I've got to do a law degree and therefore I've got, it's just so miserable, I think. Um, mm. So I hope people will have more opportunities to try things and start things. That's what I'd love. Don't um, you think that post-COVID that is what it's going to give us? Some creative that, destruction, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, I feel that it, there's, there's been this complete breaking down of what's gone before. I, I don't think there's a rearview mirror. I just, in a way, to me, I feel that we're in this new world. Mm. We, we're still navigating it. And whilst parts of it is scary, the opportunity to create better rebuild back better. God, there's a plug for my book. Of yes, there one. you go. I, uh, I think you're right. I think the contract's been broken. The contract's been broken. Um, I, and I feel that You've got to start freedom. a new one. Yeah. Yes. And you yes. start that, in, you can start that in small ways and local ways. Yes. And, you know, some of the businesses that have started during the pandemic where, you know, kids started, I don't know, vegetable stalls yeah, or loved it. making exactly. coffee or, you know, doing artwork they sold to yes. make money to look after the granny around the corner or little things like that come out of hardship and, and yes. bleakness don't they yes. so, so i think we can see that and we can be confident because we're sitting where we are but i think if you're 18 or 16 it must be quite scary yeah you know so should we push on a little light on them and say don't be scared because i think that's, that's what you should do you should empower be. people and yet yeah, show them break, take away the taboos yeah. and take away the the fear yes. there's a lot of fear isn't there well it's the biggest thing that holds us back mm. i mean mm. all the great teachings all the great philosophers is facial fear Right. Isn't it? It's right. The whole thing is that fear that stops us being. And actually, that fear, when we break through, is what grows us. Yeah, 100%. I it's totally like agree with that. You're falling off your bike and, and cracking something. You're hurting it. It's the cracks and the mend from where you grow. <laughs> well, this evening, I'm taking my daughter out to teach her how to use clip in pedals. You know, you can <gasps> Don't attach go your. There. I couldn't do those. Are they actually, she has the fear. She definitely I has the fear. I see the fear. I used to see my ex husband. Oh, that sort of, I had someone fall against my car on the Hampstead Road. I was like, no! That might have been me. We all do it. But well, I just don't see the bloody point, but I don't get where there's that little twisty ankle bit. I can't do it. I can't do it. On that note, thank you. Thank you so much, Simon Mottram. That was wonderful. It was my pleasure. There were so many threads to my conversation with Simon, from the evolution of a brand into a community to the physical and mental well-being of the people in it. And I, I thought a lot about what Simon said about being in absolute control of every aspect of his brand in order to bring his initial vision to life. Because control is often seen as negatives, something that oppresses and stifles people. And of course, we know it can be. Too much control can have the potential to suck the oxygen out of a business in which people often need space to breathe, have ideas, push forward. But and it's often a but that I find with so many of the entrepreneurs I speak to. If you are going to translate a vision into reality, as Simon did, then you do have to think about every detail, be it across everything, and be in full control of the direction of travel. You live your business. And in doing so, you shift from having a purpose to a philosophy that filters through the whole organisation. The difference, and I often talk about this, between purpose and philosophy is something we at Porters sit and talk about endlessly. Yeah, I know, we talk a lot. But purpose is a vision 
that everyone has to work to. Whereas we believe philosophy is a belief system that everyone works within rather than a touch point for your company. It's a protective shield that permeates through all you do. Rafford's philosophy is that cycling makes you and your life and your well-being better. And everyone in the business lives that. They cycle, they're passionate about the sport and they work together to embody this philosophy. That's been critical in helping Simon and his team create something that their people are just so personally involved in. It's a vital shift in perspective. Join me next week on The Kindness Economy when I'll be talking to Edzard van der Wyk, the co-founder of carbon-negative knitwear brand Sheepink. This is a man who's so obsessed by details that he's even got his wool-producing sheep on food that makes them burpless in order to decrease their methane output. The environmental values of his brand and the amazing attention to detail are extraordinary. And they're a great example of what a modern, environmentally conscious brand can achieve. That's next week on The Kindness Economy with me, Mary Portas. 